in the uh, early teachings of the Buddha, the most common word, the most common term that he uses is the word for mindfulness. It occurs far more than any of the other terms he uses. And I think that points to just the centrality of mindfulness, this practice that we're engaging with so um, in such a wholehearted way, it feels like, just having sat through a day of uh, groups and interviews. Uh, just how central that is in these teachings of awakening and liberation. And as many of you will know, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, so the, which is the Buddha's discourse on ways of establishing mindfulness, is really the sort of foundational text for all mindfulness practice. And um, it lies behind the, the contemporary, more secular forms of mindfulness, you know, MBSR, MBCT. They, they can all be traced back to this text, um, which occurs in various forms in the Buddhist teachings. And, and for those of you who are interested in, in uh, getting to know and understand the Buddhist roots of mindfulness practice and of the practice we're doing this week, would really, really commend you know, this, this text to you, it's, it provides a sort of lifetime's contemplation and practice and, and deepening. Sets, sets out, if you like, what we're doing with remarkable clarity and, and precision. And early on in the text, the, the, um, the Buddha sort of summarizes this practice that we're engaging with. And he says this, in this practice, the meditator abides contemplating the body as the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. She abides contemplating feeling tones as feeling tones, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. He abides contemplating mind states as mind states, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. She abides contemplating mental themes, we could call them, so obstructing factors and supporting factors in this path. Contemplating mental themes as mental themes, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. And there's a lot of repetition in the Buddhist teachings, as those of you who have ever opened a sutta will know well. But in this text, one really gets a sense how the repetition of certain key phrases really points to their importance. So you heard the four themes for establishing mindfulness, body, feeling tones, which we'll look at tomorrow, mental states or moods or emotions, and mental themes. And in relation to each of them, we're invited to practice contemplating them, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. And I'd like this evening just to focus on the first three of those terms, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, because they seem to point to such important features of this path and this practice that we're engaging in this week. And, and so the first of these words, ardent, I mean, it's a bit of an antique word, isn't it? You know, some people here may, may not have heard the word before. Um, but it, it has a sense of, well, on the one hand, it has a sort of sense of diligence, sort of committedness, sort of perseverance about it. But also the word ardent, uh, in English, as well as in Pali, actually, is connected with, with a word for sort of burning or fire. You know, if somebody's ardent about something, they're sort of on fire about it, aren't they? You know, there's a real sense of, 
um, sort of passion to it, certainly a sort of wholeheartedness. You know, if I'm ardent about a cause, there's a sort of wholeheartedness about that. And you know, it seems that that's really what uh, the Buddha is inviting us to cultivate in relation to the practice we're doing. This sense of real sort of warm-hearted, whole-hearted commitment to it. And, and we can see when we stop and do a retreat like this that it sort of needs a lot of commitment, doesn't it? I mean, the commitment that has brought you here, that has you know, caused you to, to make arrangements to have this time here, that takes a lot, doesn't it? You know, the commitment that keeps us showing up through these, you know, days of sitting and walking and practicing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive, you know. I always feel, not least in the middle of a retreat like we are, just a real sense of respect, you know, the, the commitment. It's a, it's a rare and precious thing for people to be so committed to qualities of awakening and being present rather than being absent or deepening their understanding and wisdom and compassion rather than all the other things that we're encouraged in our society to deepen. So, you know, that sense of ardor is, is really part of this path. And the Buddha described this path as like swimming upstream. And that may feel an appropriate analogy at times <laughs> as we practice together. Swimming upstream against the current of our habits, which are so much in the opposite direction of, aren't they? You know, the opposite direction from being present, being compassionate, being embodied, being interested, you know. And, you know, it's helpful if, if the Buddha's, you know, emphasizing this, this quality of ardor, just to think, well, what, what supports a quality of ardor in, in our lives in relationship to, to anything that we're doing? What, what supports a, a sense of commitment, a sort of wholehearted commitment in relationship to any activity or, or indeed any relationship that we hold dear? And we can see that you know, part of that, at least, is about really seeing and appreciating why it's important for us. And, and it's a good point in the retreat, I think, to, to just slightly zoom out, you know, and just reflect, well, why do you find mindfulness and meditation important? You know, there may be times when you're here and you think, you know, what am I doing here? How did I end up in the middle of this? You know, but actually something has brought you here, some intuition about the importance of being more present, inquiring into what's true, you know, reflecting on your, what your heart is calling for in your life, you know, cultivating a sense of more unconditional compassion. You know, and, and for each of us, really, it, it's important to keep connecting with that larger sense of, well, why does this matter? Why is this worth doing? And I know for, for, for me, as I, I sort of reflect on that question, it's just, it's so sort of sobering to reflect on just how, you know, the degree of, of present, you know, presentness, being present, or clarity, or understanding, or big-heartedness that I, you know, experience in any moment has such an, a, a relationship with how much suffering there is going on, you know. And in the moments when there's a lot of fog of greed, ill will and delusion, you know, as the Buddha named them, you know, just the sense of how obstructive that can be in suffering, I, I, you know, in, in creating a sense of suffering and obscuring a sense of well-being. And in the very first verses of... Uh, the Dhammapada, which some of you will know is the, is the sort of best loved collection of the Buddha's teachings, he, he expresses this very sort of directly. He says, and this is, this is a, a, uh, 
a quotation that I, f I find really resonant when I reflect on, well, why is this important? He says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a clouded mind, a, uh, a mind that's not seeing clearly. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. And when we stop and reflect, don't we sort of recognize the truth of that? You know, how our mind is, is how our life is. Uh, and that so much points to the value of really cultivating wholesome qualities of mind. Qualities of mind that support a sense of happiness and well-being. That, that is a, a blessing to ourselves and to those with whom we are. And, and the Buddha was really clear about the role of mindfulness within this. He, he said, you know, mindfulness is the direct path towards clear seeing towards the dissolving of dissatisfaction and discontent, towards finding the true path through life, towards the realizing of nirvana, nibbana, as he called it, awakening. And, and, you know, I think it is helpful just regularly, both on retreat and in daily life, to reconnect with that sense of, okay, I don't want my life to be governed by my habits. I don't want my story, my life story, to be written by my habits. You know? I don't want just to be caught up in the repeat loop thinking that can be so um, obstructive. And, and to sort of let that go from a sort of head level to a heart level to a belly level. You know? And it really points, you know, if we, if we reflect on this radical possibility that the Buddha lays out, not just of stress reduction, but of a progressive, gradual awakening, a progressive, gradual discovering of a freedom in relationship to the patterns that so easily entrap us, that really points to the preciousness of opportunities like this to practice, doesn't it? You know, isn't it interesting how, you know, we can be on retreat and uh, just the difficulty makes us think, oh, golly, I, I wish I was back home sometimes. And yet how often when we're in the middle of daily life do we long to be in circumstances just like this, don't we? So it'll all be so much easier when I'm on retreat, you know, it'll be peaceful. And, and it's worth remembering that. You know, that actually this is a precious opportunity. The conditions are so supportive here. Somehow they've come together to enable us all to be here doing this, you know. And, and we so often don't live as if this day really mattered or if this, as if this sitting mattered or this walking period mattered, you know. It's very easy to, to put off, say, so, well, I, you know, I'm going to put off really giving myself to this practice until, well, sort of until what, you know? And just to value the preciousness of this, this time, this day, this evening, you know, as a chance for being present, as a chance for inquiring, as a chance for practicing befriending. And traditionally, the sort of reflections on on change that uh, Martine introduced last evening are really seen as supporting this sense of, of ardency. Joseph Goldstein has what he calls his two laws of spiritual thermodynamics. One of which, the first of which is that anything can happen at any time. And the second of which is, if it's not one thing, it'll be another, you know? And you know, I find those helpful to reflect on. You know, anything can happen at any time. And does. You know.
and and you know none of us knows what future opportunities we'll have to practice you know to be in a place like this you know and just to bring that to mind you know the preciousness of this the preciousness of a time on retreat away from all the pressures of daily life you know can really help to give a sense of okay i really want to make the most of this <laughs> really want to make the most of this sense of really i want to use use this time this time on retreat this time in the middle of daily life you know this time of sitting in the morning or the evening i really want to use this well you know because i don't know how long i'm going to have these sorts of ch- chances for to use them well and we can see how you know amidst the sort of river of change the fact that conditions are changing all the time so many of you have commented today on just how you know something you thought wasn't going to change has changed you know how different today is from yesterday how different this afternoon is from this morning and we can see that there's a sort of cascade of change in every moment isn't there the more closely we look and that in a certain way what this practice of meditation and mindfulness provides is a, a sort of refuge in the midst of that change another way of being with experience there's those those zen images of of waterfalls and if you look closely you can see behind them is a little owl with eyes wide open and it's sort of pointing to this possibility of of being present for of of knowing and noticing the flow of conditions in each moment the flow of conditions in the body the flow of conditions in the mind the sense that okay i can wake up to this moment this moment right now as you're sitting here you can can feel the flow of change and what a refuge that is to have you know amidst the changing circumstances of our lives to have a sense of okay there is a way of being with this that has a more if you like enduring value through the cultivation of the qualities of patience and kindness and interest and experiential investigation you know in in the story of siddhartha you know the the legend of siddhartha before he came the buddha it, it said that he had these these sights these heavenly messengers that helped to wake him up you know he saw old age sickness and death and and these were sort of shocking these were real awakenings realizing that things are impermanent that life is impermanent and then he saw the fourth sight of a, a sadhu or a practitioner who had a certain peacefulness about him and that gave siddhartha the sense of possibility or maybe it's possible to be with the changing conditions of life in a way that actually can have a peacefulness to it can have a sense of presence a wakefulness a compassion to it and you know as we sort of reflect on the heavenly messengers in our own lives you know the times of disappointment or loss or things changing fast in ways that don't feel like they're how we want them to change you know there there is something about really uh, heeding their their call heeding their message and really having that sense of the possibility of relating to this life with more wakefulness with more understanding with more wisdom with more compassion with a sort of orientation to truth because we can see that in a certain way that's what's what what ardency in this path is about it's an ardency for really knowing what's true moment by moment knowing what's true in this relationship in this situation in this heart you know and 
you know, the, as we reflect on, you know, the, the delights and the difficulties we encounter in our lives, we can, one can sense, oh, there, there is a certain urgency to waking up, <laughs> you know. Certainly our, need, our world needs people who are committed to waking up, doesn't it, you know. And the, 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 the stories, the traditional stories of in, through the, the sort of centuries really highlight this sense, sense of urgency. I was talking with Martine earlier about that saying in Zen where they say, practice as if your hair was on fire. You know, practice as if your hair was on fire. You know, if your hair was on fire, you wouldn't say, oh, I must just go shopping or... I must just, you know, update my Facebook status or whatever it happens to be, you know. It's actually a sense of, I've got to do something about this, you know. And, and I feel really grateful to the this, this sort of, if you like, that one could see the sort of, see them as our grandparents, our Dharma grandparents, the, the, the Asian teachers who taught the first generation of Western teachers who went to Asia and practiced often as monks and nuns and then came back and one gets a sense that, you know, uh, Ajahn Chah or Master Kusan, who was Martin's teacher, you know, they had a real sense of ardency and the urgency of this. I will always remember hearing Martin say on a retreat how Master Kusan said to her, you need to bear beyond strength, you know. And also the story that uh, I gather Larry Rosenberg tells of, of a student uh, who was daunted at the prospect of having to do a week's meditation without sleep as part of a three-month retreat. And his teacher said, one breath at a time. You know, that's how to do it. And those sorts of stories, and you know, the stories of Ajahn Chah and the sort of the challenges that he presented to his, his, uh, those studying with him. I, I, for me, there's a certain sense of, okay, let's really sort of um, let's have a certain ardor, let's have a certain passion for this, let's have a determination. It takes determination, really, to transform the mind, step by step, day by day. Yeah? And there's an interesting balance, isn't there, between that sense of determination and ardor and passion and the sort of non-striving language that one particularly finds in sec secular mindfulness training. And both are important. And in fact, this, this points to a sort of balance that's needed between this passionate commitment, this wholehearted sort of application, and the sense of kindness, rest, relaxation. And the Buddha compared it to tuning a lute or a guitar, you know, how you can tune a guitar's strings too tight so that they get tense, you know, over tense and they're on breaking point. And the strings can be too loose and floppy and all over the place, can't they? And one can feel, even in this moment as you sit here now, just, you know, sense that possibility of a balance between being really engaged as best you can in this moment's experience and also easeful a sense of ease in the body, or rest, or relaxation. You know, and very helpful as, as practice, you know, as we practice over these days, to be very attentive to levels of effort. And to notice when we're too tight and pushing too hard, or when we're too sort of floppy and disengaged, you know. And to have that sense of, okay, what is it in this moment? Just to engage a sense of interest and a sense of rest or relaxation. Both of these are important in the path. Both of these are aspects of the, the factors of awakening. And we can notice how this needs to come, this can't really come so much from the head center, which, which often has a sense of should and duty and what ought I to be doing? It's, it, when practice comes from that place, we can feel how that's not really ardor. That's sort of forcing ourselves. You know, if we think about the word ardor, it, it actually, you know, it's often associated with love, isn't it? 
ardently in love. And that actually, you know, part of the, I think we said this on the first evening, you know, part of the opportunity here is to fall more deeply in love with being awake. You know, fall more deeply in love with being anchored in the body, at least in some moments of our days. Fall more deeply in love with investigating, exploring what we're experiencing. Really important to see that ardor does not mean grimness. You know, ardor is not about a gritted teeth quality. Ardor is as much about play as anything. How helpful it is to have a sense of playing with the breath. Playing with ways of listening to the sounds. Playing with the walking meditation. Playing, exploring, experimenting, trying things out, you know. That sort of spirit is a lot about of what ardor is about. And really that needs to come from a place of nourishment. It's been interesting again today and, and moving just to reflect with some of the people in the groups about what is it really to let ourselves be nourished while we're here? really to open the senses to the beauty that's surrounding us. The peacefulness. So many of you have commented on how much you're appreciating the silence and the peacefulness of that. I know not always, but at least sometimes the sense of, ah, oh, can bask in this silence. You know. Just to have that sense of keeping in touch with the nourishment, and also the inspiration. It's one of the key factors that supports ardor, is a sense of inspiration. You know, Very helpful just to bring to mind while you're here, you know, what is it that inspires you to do this? And to reflect on, as we, when we prepare to go home in a few days' time, you know, how can I keep that sense of inspiration alive? Ardor in a certain way, is a holy flame. You know, the holy flame that causes and has caused people for millennia to engage in spiritual practice. You know, and it needs, that flame needs feeding, needs resourcing. And so, you know, keeping in touch with what inspires us, the books, the talks, the practices, the images that inspire us. I know that part of what inspires me is that sense that we're not just doing this for ourselves alone. And actually maybe I'll, I'll come back to that in, uh, in, a, in a bit. Martine spoke today about the sense of aspiration and that's really what, what we're talking about when we're reflecting on Ada. And you know, really to get practical about, well, what does that mean on retreat? Well, just the, the willingness to give ourselves to the practice, to give ourselves to the rhythm of sitting and walking and resting, to give ourselves to all the moments of our day, you know, the moments in our bedroom or bathroom or, you know, the other places where sometimes we can have a sense of, oh, off duty, you know. <laughs> and, and actually it's not that this is a sort of, it's not a sort of, mindfulness police that's saying we should be on duty, but what is it just to have that sense of, you know, embodiment or friendliness that we, we let pervade all the moments of our day while we're here. And, you know, another, a, a key way in which we can practice ardor is through this second phrase the, 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 that I, I read, the, so ardent, clearly knowing and mindful. And the clearly knowing and mindful, that's a, it, those two words come together a lot in the Buddha's teachings. He talks about mindfulness and clear, clear knowledge, or mindful and clearly knowing. 
And we can see that there are lots of levels to this. At one level, it's about really knowing what we're doing. As, as John Kabat-Zinn puts it, doing something and knowing that you're doing it. You know? So chopping the vegetables and, and being aware of chopping the vegetables or being aware of walking up the steps or being aware of tasting and chewing food, you know. That's the clearly knowing, that's a key part of clearly knowing. And in the middle of our practices, you know, what a difference it makes when we really sort of get clear, okay, what is going to be the anchor point during this meditation? What am I going to practice during this half hour sitting? What am I going to commit to coming back to? You know, I, I know in, in my own experience that, that often when there can be a certain mindfulness present, but actually a lack of orientation of that mindfulness. Do you know, do you know that, that feeling? That you're sort of present, but you, you haven't really got clear, or I haven't really got clear, what is it I'm practicing? What is the anchor point I'm going to come back to? Is it the breath? If it's the breath, where? You know, the whole breath, in the belly, in the nostrils, you know. Is it the body? Well, where in the body, you know? And what's the attitude I'm going to practice, as well as the object that I'm going to come back to? What a difference it makes, you know. The, you can see that, you know, why the Tibetans say, well, it all rests on the, everything rests on the tip of intention. You know, we could say that everything rests on the tip of clearly knowing what we're doing, or what we're practicing. What's going to be our focus? What's going to be our anchor? And so helpful, you know, at the beginning of a sitting period, at the beginning of a walking period, just to spend a few moments getting somewhat clear about that. And of course, the focus may shift during the sitting. May, you know, may decide to you know, move from the breath to the listening, and that's fine. But the, the, this clear knowing is really what enables that as a mindful response to the changing conditions. And at another level, clear knowing, the Buddha uses this phrase in terms of getting you know, thoroughly knowing certain habits of mind, certain patterns of mind. Right, he, again and again, he compares mindfulness and meditation to like learning a craft. You know, and as you learn a craft, if you're sort of apprentice to a craft or learning a musical instrument or a, you know, a sport or a language, it's like this, you get to know the, what, you're getting to know how things work. And I thought I'd just say a few words um, this evening about one of those themes that he says, get to know how this works. And that's the theme of the hindrances, which are one of the, you remember at the start I spoke about the four different ways of establishing mindfulness, body, feeling tones, mind states, and mental themes. Well, the hindrances is one of the main set of mental themes there. And it's one of the most helpful lists. You know, you know how Buddhism is full of lists. Uh, as sort of ways of remembering things. But one of the most helpful lists, I think, is the list of the hindrances. Because it highlights these five ways in which clarity gets obscured. Five ways in which, whenever we commit to anything, <laughs> there are these sort of five different factors of mind that tend to come up and complicate. And a key part of the clear knowing or the thorough knowing that the Buddha is rec recommending is really getting to know how these factors work. And I spoke about two of them yesterday, sleepiness and restlessness. And the other three are what's traditionally called sensual craving, which basically is the sort of wanting mind. Have you had any of that over these days? You know? <laughs> you know. Wanting it to be lunch, you know, wanting the mind to settle down, wanting to feel more comfortable in the body. So the wanting mind, the, the sort of hungry eyes that are sort of planning for pleasure, you know, that sort, you know, of, of all the different sorts. That's the first. The second is the opposite, the aversion or ill will or not wanting, which can take many different forms. So it can take the form of boredom, frustration, irritability, fear, judgmentalism. 
you know, let's just put that one on the list, you know? The, the inner critic is a form of aversion, yeah? Shame, frustration, impatience. So those are the first two. And then the, you have your sleepiness and drowsiness and dullness that we spoke about. The restlessness, agitation and worry. Uh, and then the last one is doubt, which can be a form of self, can be self-doubt. Like, you know, I can't do this. This is too difficult. I'm not up to it. Everybody else is out there getting enlightened and I'm still trying to find a breath, you know. Or it can be the sort of doubt about the path, you know. Is this really what it's cracked up to be? Maybe I should have done that golf course that Martine mentioned instead, you know, rather than coming here. And we can see how, you know, doubt, which is, is often comes, arises in, in, out of a sort of failure of our strategies to deal with the other four. Does that make sense? You know? And we can see how these rarely come alone, these factors. They, they tend to come in a sort of what some people call a multiple hindrance attack, you know, where, you know, there's a pain in the knee and the pain in the knee means that I get restless, you know, and then I'm restless and so I start fantasizing about lunch and then I start judging myself for fantasizing about lunch because I'm so greedy and then I think, oh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe I should have done the Zumba course instead uh, and then I go to sleep, you know, I find myself nodding off and you see, you know, like the, the hindrances, they can just be a storm, can't they? I mean, does anybody not recognize all of these from the last few days' practice? You know. And then they're not just a beginner's practice. You know, they, they occur at more and more subtle levels. And what the Buddha's inviting in this factor of clearly knowing them is getting to know how they work, getting to know, you know, know them for what they are so that we're not just hoodwinked by them, and also getting to know how to work with them, you know, work skillfully with them. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the, the, uh, using the acronym RAIN, which some of you will know, R-A-I-N. Uh, and in this context, that stands for recognize, allow, investigate, or we could use the, the phrase we've been using on this retreat, sort of experiential investigation and not-self, yeah? as a way of working with particularly difficult mind states, you know, difficult mind states or hindrances. So, so just to run through those quickly, recognize. We can see just how helpful it is to recognize what's happening. Oh, this is boredom. Or this is frustration. Or this is anxiety, you know. Just the recognition, you know, you might even do it right now. What's the mood that's coloring the mind right now? You know, just name it to yourself. And noticing how that changes the relationship with it, doesn't it? We say, oh, this is that. Or, you know, sadness is happening. Anxiety is happening. We can see how, you know, these... these Hindrance states gain a lot of their power from being unconscious and how they tend to want to point us towards objects. So, you know, we get frustrated with the schedule or with the food or with the snoring or the, you know, the weather or whatever it is. Uh, and they want to point us out at objects rather than encouraging us to recognize, oh, this is a mind state. <laughs> this is a mental state. And we can see that when we do that, it becomes more workable when we recognize, oh, this is a mind state that's coloring my experience in this moment. And so just recognizing can be enough to help prevent us from being taken for a ride by them. And then allowing, you know, allowing what we're experiencing. So important, isn't it? Particularly with, you know, emotional states or body states, we can see how resisting and bracing against what we're experiencing tends to make them more difficult. Because the nature of each of these hindrances is a resistance to the present moment. And so resistance plus resistance equals more resistance. Like Thich Han says, you can't put out fire with more fire, you know? And so actually to practice, you know, allowing dropping the storyline and allowing whatever the body is experiencing, you know, 
Maybe keeping a sense of the anchor through the feet, the soles of the feet, or the seat, or the breath. But just letting a sense of allowing, you know, be our relationship, the, the relationship that we're practicing with what we're experiencing. Very helpful in relation to these, you know, the emotional states, the difficult states that inevitably arise, or indeed the pleasant states, you know, really to allow the joy, really to allow the sense of peacefulness, rather than to keep it somewhat contained. And then the I, this sense of investigation, or experiential inquiry, to reflect, you know, well, how does this feel in the body? How does this mental state that you're experiencing right now feel in the body? What feeds it? You know, what feeds the frustration or the boredom? And what fasts it? You know, where can I place the attention in the body that means that I'm not giving it so much fuel, for instance? Or what difference does it make if I go to the hearing the sounds when the mind is feeling contracted? And, and this, you know, Martin calls it creative engagement. And I love that phrase because it gives the sense of, again, the sense of play, of really exploring difficult mind states, getting to know them. How do they work, you know? How does impatience work? How does restlessness work? What are skillful ways of relating to sleepiness that mean I'm not just, you know, lost in the fog of it? And this is all part of the clearly knowing, you know, quality. We can see how to be interested in a mind state brings at least a sliver of spaciousness or freedom. It's, it's difficult to be completely lost in a mind state that we're interested in. Does that make sense? You say, ah, oh, interesting, boredom. Ah. Let's see if I can be the first meditator to die of boredom. Let's try it out. Let's see what that's like if I really allow the boredom. Or how does boredom work? You know. So you know, interest is part of how we bring a sense of uh, greater spaciousness in relationship to these hindrance states. And the last one, not-self, is really you know, to reflect that we don't need to take these states personally. The fact that we experience restlessness or sleepiness is not a personal failing. You know, this is the weather. It's just the weather of the mind. These are sort of impersonal forces that arise as external conditions and in con internal conditions meet. And I appreciate John Kabat-Zinn's phrase, you know, whatever is arising is curriculum. You know, whatever is arising is curriculum. And just that sense of, okay, the non-personal nature of it, it's not me, it's not mine, it's just mind state or body sensation or feeling tone arising. And part of what that can enable is, is a sense of, of compassion. Because we can recognize, you know, if we say, oh, this is sadness. This is sadness that although our stories of sadness may be different, the experience of, this, of sadness is very, very similar. You know? And that's part of what this sort of recognizing of the universal nature, the, if you like, the common humanity that these hindrances point to. You know? These hindrances that get in the way of our relationships, that, that, or at least provide the curriculum for our relationships, you know? or the curriculum for our learning of all sorts of things. And so this, this quality of clearly knowing or getting to know, very key part of the path. It's easy to see these states when they come up as somehow obstacles that shouldn't be here. But actually what the Buddha is saying and what you know, we have the opportunity to practice is, what, what if this is, this is the curriculum of this moment, getting to know how to be with restlessness in a way that moves the mind, body, heart towards a greater sense of balance? Getting to recognize how to relate to the ju judging mind in a way that, again, moves the mind-heart towards a greater sense of openness and balance where judge judgment isn't impinging so much. So, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful.
just for the last few minutes reflecting on mindfulness and you know, inviting you to reflect on, well, how do you experience mindfulness in this moment? Some of the, the words I find helpful are, you know, this present moment wakefulness. Sort of wakefulness. The, the Buddha described this as a path not of enlightenment, but of awakening. That's what the word Buddha means. You know, and the possibility right now in this very moment of being awake to what you're experiencing. I've also appreciated the, the sense today, you know, in the practice we've been doing of listening, that mindfulness is very like listening. It's a sort of a listening. It's often, you know, in some of the, perhaps the earlier writing in English about mindfulness, they used images of seeing a lot. So it was like, watch the breath, observe the emotional state. And that can suggest, that sort of visual metaphor can suggest a certain detachment. And I think Marie brought it up in a question the other day, that sort of distancing in a certain way. Listening is actually much more immediate, isn't it? Much more sort of connected, much more intimate in a certain way. You know, what is it to listen to the body in this moment? To listen to this breath that you're breathing right now. To listen to this mind state that's present, colouring this moment. Sort of, mindfulness often feels more like a sort of satellite dish than like a laser beam, if you know what I mean. It's got a sort of receptive quality rather than a sort of... And, and that's the nature of the knowing that the Buddha is talking about here. The, the Buddha uses the most common verb in the Satipatthana Sutta is the verb to know. And it's not some sort of distant knowing, it's an intimate knowing. It's, it's this intimate getting to know. Not at a conceptual level, but with an intimacy. You know, Mindfulness of this breath is an intimacy with this breath. Knowing this breath as it is, long or short or peaceful or jagged or And we can see just how inseparable mindfulness and kindness are. Just how inseparable mindfulness is from a sense of friendliness, a sense of befriending. In fact, if you look at the Buddha's teachings on metta or kindness, which we'll speak about more later in the week, he describes metta as a form of mindfulness. He describes kindness as a form of mindfulness. You know, and it's helpful to remember that if it's not kind, it's not mindfulness. You know, and really to experience the the difference, you know, in our practice between the what you could call the cold stare of attention and the warm friendliness of mindfulness. You know, even in a moment, we can feel how. It's changed when there's a sort of a certain friendliness towards how the body feels, towards how this breath feels. And sometimes that friendliness is just a willingness to tolerate. You know, when things are difficult, that friendliness, friendliness may feel way too much if the body or the mind are really painful. But the first step in, in friendliness can be a willingness to tolerate or a willingness to breathe with, to take a breath with this thought or this body pain or this painful mental image or this fear. And that the sort of befriending quality that, that is integral to mindfulness is, is a gradual journey often, you know. As, as Martin says, you know, this, this quality of mindfulness is caring and careful, you know, respectful. Mm. I, uh, I feel that, that for me, one of the 
factors that most supports the sense of inspiration or ardor around this is, is that sense that this practice we're doing is not just caring and compassionate, you know, not about just practicing caring and compassion for this body and mind, but is in some ways uh, can be oriented as, as, a, as a sort of humble offering into the world because we can see that our practice here as we sit and walk and spend this time together, it doesn't just affect us, does it? You know, what we do with our own hearts and minds isn't just for our own benefit or harm. How our minds and hearts are has impact on many other people's lives, doesn't it? Those who we love, those who we know, and those who we don't know. And, you know, I, I think it can be very inspiring to, to, to move from just that recognition that, you know, what we do on retreat has an impact when we go home on the people around us, actually to turning that into a motivation. <laughs> so, you know, that sense that at the beginning or the end of a sitting or the beginning or the end of a day's practice, we can, we can have a sense of, you know, may what I'm practicing today somehow contribute to the well-being, to the lessening of suffering in this world. For those that I love, those that I know, those that I live with, those that I work with those who I don't know, you know. I don't know what you do, you know, a lot of people just do a gesture at the end of a sitting and it can be a beautiful thing to bring to mind, that sense of, okay, there are so many living beings suffering in this moment, suffering intensely in this moment. May any benefit from this practice, this sitting, this walking, this day together, truly be shared with them, may it be dedicated to them, may it in some way contribute to the alleviation of their suffering. And I think just to sort of you know, come to a conclusion with this, just that sense that of, of inspiration, that sense of your practice, our practice being a, the intention behind it being a compassionate offering into the world, actually helps to make it less, matter less whether I've managed to find my breath for more than three consecutive breaths in this sitting, you know? Or whether I've managed to walk the length of the walking path without forgetting my feet, you know? Because actually one sees, then one senses the larger sense of intention, the larger sense of offering that is the sort of vehicle for our practice and that is trustworthy and that can help to inspire us as we spend this time together. So, thank you for your attention. Uh, and I wonder if we have a few minutes, if anyone has any uh, comments or questions or observations they'd like to make or share. Hmm. Please. Um, yeah, the, the, the talks from retreats here will go onto the Dharma Seed website and we'll, um, we'll give some details of that at the end of the retreat. So yeah, yeah they're all available. Okay, oh, please. Yeah, thank you for raising that, because as you say, we have such associations around the word mind. And, and the Pali term chitta, 
C-I-T-T-A, which is the word that the Buddha is talking about in this mindfulness practice, being aware of citta, really means mind-heart. So that we have a sense that actually, you know, emotional states or moods are mind-heart states. So it's, he's not really talking about the sort of conceptual intellectualizing mind, so much as the sort of heart state of the moment. Does that make sense? And we, and we can see how inseparable that is from the body. In Buddhist psychology, you know, Martin mentioned uh, dependent arising last evening, the, the Buddhist teaching on conditionality, how you know, mind and body condition each other, you know. And, and the, as we've been seeing, the, the, the state of the heart, the state of the chitta, shapes how the body feels. <laughs> you know? And so it is a, a lot more deeply interdependent than our language tends to suggest. Does, does that speak to what you... you know, and, and certainly that third foundation of... third way of establishing mindfulness is this awareness of mind, mind-heart states. Chitta states. Hmm. Thank you. Please. Yes, yes. 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 Thank you. Did everyone get the question? Oh, I think <laughs> lots of smiles of recognition around the room. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's important to notice this is not a dogma. This is not saying there is no self. What the Buddha is saying is practice this way of looking where we see what arises as not me and not mine. And, you know, with a quality like you know, any mental state that's recurring, we can notice that there are often very subtle levels of identification with it. So there's often a sense of, you know, with impatience of my, of a story, and, and there's me as the impatient one with some object, whether that's the schedule or the body or the mind itself, you know. So we can see just how much selfing tends to go on, particularly around difficult mental states. And one of the things you can notice is that um, the more there is reactivity, the more there's a reaction of not liking or of liking, the stronger the sense of self tends to be and the stronger the sense of suffering tends to be. And the more one can have a sense of, okay, impatience, welcome, you know. Once again, impatience, you know. (laughs) Thank you for returning. Good afternoon, you know. And, and really practice, you, know, you may even drop in the phrase, this is not me, this is not mine. You know, this is the product of conditions, like the weather. You know, does, does that make sense? And just to see what happens if you know, we really practice disidentifying, to use a rather clumsy psychological word, you know, unhooking from identification with any mental state that comes up. You know, and as I say, that reflection, oh, not me, not mine, just impatience. How does it feel in the body? How does it shape the view of the moment? Does, does that make sense? You know, and, and um, it can support being patient with impatience. You know, the Dalai Lama often says, doesn't he, he says that patience is the quality that we need the most when we do this practice. So... Can I really practice being patient with my impatience or with this impatience that's arising? Okay. Well, well, thank you. I I, um, appreciate your listening. And uh, I hope these these reflections on ardent, mindful, clearly knowing can, can in some way support your practice.
So we have some time now for uh, walking meditation and then a bell to come back for the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.